Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast. I'm Jeannie Hedden-Gallagher. This week, we'll explore the challenges and opportunities associated with working remotely, something that has become increasingly common during the COVID-19 pandemic. Timothy Golden, a professor in the Lally School of Management at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, has been studying telecommuting for more than 20 years and is one of the nation's leading experts on this topic. I recently spoke with him about what the explosion in remote work means for companies and employees. You have studied telecommuting for more than 20 years, yet this topic has probably never seen so much focus than in the past 10 months. Have, were you ever able to anticipate a, a, like such a, such a profound change in the way that telecommuting works? You know, over the last 20 years, you know, I've seen many changes in telecommuting and, and part of that has been borne out by advances in technology and, and, and up to this point, you know, before the pandemic, there's been a, a widespread growth of telecommuting around the world. But, you know, that simply doesn't compare to uh, what has been happening recently with the COVID-19 pandemic. The explosive growth that we've seen in telecommuting, um, you know, certainly not anything that anyone could have anticipated but it's really having profound implications for how we work now and how we'll work in the future. So tell me about those profound implications. What have you seen change since the start of the pandemic? So since the start of the pandemic, I've talked with many, many different people about telecommuting. And one thing that that sticks out in my mind is that people view the way they work differently now than they did before the pandemic began. You know, so before the pandemic, you know, uh, although telecommuting was was growing rapidly here in the United States, as well as many areas around the world, it certainly wasn't just on such a widespread and a pervasive basis as it is today during the pandemic. And so people, because they've been forced to telecommute um, and work away from the office, they're much more comfortable with with that way of working. And, and that's sort of um, shifted their mindset, if you will. It's shifted the way that they think about their work. It shifts, has shifted the way they think about accomplishing their work on a daily basis and how they sort of construct in their mind uh, the way that they carry out their tasks with other people. So you say you've seen a mind shift. Uh, any specifics that how people are dealing with their work differently these days? So people think about the office place in, in a different manner. So when typically, you know, in the past when people would commute into the office and they would uh, work there for eight or 10 or more hours a day and, and see their colleagues day in and day out, and that had the, the advantage of proximity. Now, because people are, are largely working remotely away from the office, um, they don't have that daily contact with people and they don't have that, that natural observational opportunity to interpret what's going on in the office and to understand how people are acting and reacting and, and make some inferences as to why. And so this, this has, has implications for the way that they think about carrying out their tasks on a daily basis. It has implications for all sorts of levels in terms of, of managers, how they must manage employees, and for how workers must you know, manage their relationships with their boss and their coworkers. I guess one of the stigmas that was attached to telecommuting before all this happened was that you, know, you weren't committed to your work. 
right? I believe I read that in some of your research. And now everyone's telecommuting. Have you seen that the increase of acceptance because everyone has to do it has decreased the stigma? No, absolutely. Uh, You know, now that telecommuting is practiced on such a massive scale around the world, that stigma is, is beginning to evaporate. And, and I think that will largely continue after the pandemic has passed. You know, as people um, get used to this way of working, and, and that is helping to sort of uh, erode that, that fear or that stigma of, hey, if someone is working away, how do I know they're really working? And, you know, can I depend on them? You know, there will always be people who uh, want to work in the office, and there will always be people who want their employees to work in the office, and that's perfectly fine. And and so there's a variety of different contexts there where um, where this might apply. But but it is um, it is helping people to sort of uh, overcome that stigma and and to think differently about working away from the office. So if one of the disadvantages was that managers weren't really able to trust them, their employees to, to get their work done. Has that panned out over the past eight months? If everyone is working from home and we still have, we're still working and the jobs are being done, is that being proven wrong? Well, what I find is, you know, in large part, uh, people are uh, well-intentioned and, you know, they want to do a good job and, and with the right sort of incentives in place on the part of the company, you know, those those employees continue to be productive employees and to carry out the, the their work, you know, with all the enthusiasm and vigor that they might uh, have otherwise if they were in the office full time. Now, that's not to say that employees, employers shouldn't set up the right the right uh, incentive systems to uh, to make sure that their employees feel motivated. And certainly it's, it's reasonable to have, um, you know, accountability and it takes a, a conversation, right? It takes a conversation between the manager and the employee to, uh, to iron out how their, how this uh, work arrangement is going to, to carry on and what types of things are appropriate and, and when those employees should be available and, and, you know, how much they should be working and, you know, all those types of particulars of, of setting up a, a real work arrangement, you know, as if uh, someone was in the office. Um, but it, you know, it takes a little bit of different uh, way of of carrying out work, and a little bit different way, perhaps, of of measuring and and checking in with employees, and 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 for the telecommuter, making sure they check in with a manager. It does seem like a sea change of attitude on the part of managers, and an, uh, the need for an evolution of communication. I think it has really been a, a real shift. And now that we've seen that telecommuting can actually work on a wide scale basis, you know, I, I would think that um, as we continue to uh, to sort of weather this pandemic and hopefully uh, continue to work our way effectively through it, um, we're going to be having more of these conversations about, hey, how can we work, not just because it's different, but how can we work smarter? Because in a lot of ways, it's not about if we telecommute anymore. The conversation is really about how we do so. And so we need to give careful thought and consideration to making sure that we can do this in a really effective way and really optimize our work outcomes when we telecommute. Uh, I wanted to dive, dig deeper a little on something that you said earlier that you deal with data and that you deal with findings. And yet, we're talking about people. 
right? We're talking about people who have to, who had this change thrust upon them and are now working from home in perhaps optimal situations when they have a room to themselves, but probably most are not. Many of them are probably at a kitchen table that they're sharing with their kids uh, or in a, you know, in a place where they don't have great internet connectivity. And, you know, managers are having to think on their feet and pivot as well. And you say you deal with data, and yet we're talking about how people, how humanity can change. So, you know, telecommuting is, is, is admittedly a little bit different now during the pandemic than it might be historically, right? Because now, you know, there's many people who might be in that home environment along with the telecommuter. So if they have children present in their family, if they have spouses present, if they have other family or relatives present in their in their household. And so it is a more complex environment. And so um, while certainly many people don't have an ideal sort of works environment or situation working at home, um, you know, what I'm finding is, is people are adapting, people are resilient, and people are finding ways to do what they need to do. Now, now certainly that doesn't mean that there are instances where, you know, telecommuting has been an immense struggle and, and that the environment is just uh, so non-conducive to, to working remotely. But I think for many people, they, they are finding ways. It takes communication and it takes a uh, sort of a, a coordinated effort amongst not just people that you work with, but also those people that are in your home environment and coordinating with them so that you can really, you know, maximize your outcomes to the extent possible, given all the constraints that you might have present within your home environment. Is um, one last question, is telecommuting making the best of a bad situation? <laughs> is it a tool for work in the future? Well, I, I, you know, I think it really does both, right? The, the pandemic has no doubt forced organizations to consider new tools and new ways of working, you know, and, and that experience may have forever changed us in how we think about work. You know, telecommuting is a, is a wonderful tool when employed thoughtfully and carefully that, that can help us work effectively. And I, you know, I think that has certainly enabled us to continue um, carrying out our business on a day-to-day -day basis for, for many companies and organizations around the world, you know, during this, this immense struggle that we've had as part of the pandemic. But I also think that in and of itself, telecommuting is a tool that, that can be thoughtfully implemented that can help us achieve many things in life. So it can help us achieve a, a better balance between work and family. It can help us avoid commutes. And so, you know, those saved uh, resources in terms of mental and physical resources, we can apply then to other areas of our life. So, so I think telecommuting is certainly um, helping us make the, the best, if you will, of, of this, this situation that we're in with the pandemic, but it also is a, is a wonderful tool in and of itself that I think presents uh, additional opportunities going forth for us in the future. I also spoke with Christopher Fisher Lockhead, a lecturer in the Rensselaer School of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences, commonly referred to as Haas. He's also the leader of the new fusion ensemble here at Rensselaer, which combines the Rensselaer Orchestra, Concert Choir, and Chamber Music Ensembles into one group. 
It was created as a way to move forward in the pandemic, with some members participating in person and others remotely, usually via WebEx. I spoke with him about putting this new group together under difficult circumstances and how, despite everything, they are still preparing to pull off a major Rensselaer tradition, the President's Holiday Concert. Let's begin at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about creating Fusion Ensemble. So the the first decision, I think, was simply deciding that music ensembles were an essential part of what we do in the arts department and Haas and the Institute as a whole, right? That these are essential parts of both the, the academic curriculum, but also of the sense of community and the social experience for students. Then the second was a, a long process of how do we then keep that happening, right? How, how do we allow that to happen um, given the challenges that we face? Because these days, you know, you, ha- you have to be adaptive to anything that comes your way, whether that's a student who can no longer participate or a student who all of a sudden can only participate in a certain way, or also students whose, let's, let's say, whose desire to be part of something like this wouldn't necessarily fit in to the traditional categories of music making, right? I have a lot of students who don't have a traditional classical background, and before this ensemble was started, many of the the school's ensembles were very much rooted in that kind of classical tradition. And so we're making a, a big effort to expand, you know, the, the boundaries of, of what we consider ensemble uh, m- music to to be more inclusive as well. Music is inherently communal, right? That, that music is something that is done with other people. It's something that we do to create avenues of communication and empathy. And, you know, those things also happen to be exactly why they become problematic when there's a pandemic, right? That, that when you depend on the physical proximity um, to your, your co-performers and, and to your audience, um, that makes, that's obviously hard to do when you're also trying to maintain social distancing and, and being, being safe. So I think um, one of the, the big challenges has been how do we salvage as much of that communal feeling while also maintaining safety. So what technology are you using to make that happen? Uh, in, in the classroom, we've been using various video conferencing software, WebEx. We've been um, engaging in more kind of asynchronous types of musical collaboration where you're not making music at the exact same time as someone else, but you're learning how to have that kind of musical sense of connection over um, you know, distances and over time periods and, and whatnot. Um, so we're doing the best we can. And to be honest, there, there are some silver linings, right, of, of the type of interactions we've been forced to take that might actually change the way that I go about teaching music in the future. I've actually found that the, the chat, you know, that the chat window in, in WebEx, um, can be a really rich area, a rich space for, for discussion that kind of blooms in this, not traditionally conversational way, right? And and I found that there's a certain kind of messy beauty to the way that conversations can bloom and collaborations can can bloom um, when it's not uh, abiding by that that strict kind of social ordering. 
And in addition to educating in the middle of a pandemic, you also had to prepare for a big holiday concert. How daunting has that been? College students have a tremendous capacity to rise to the occasion. And this was a high bar we set for ourselves, knowing that we would have to pull something off by the end of the semester without even knowing what it would be like to be in this class, right? No one had ever done this before, myself included. And so we didn't know how we were gonna get there, but we knew we were gonna have to get there some way because this is a really important event for, for the, the Institute. That it's, it's of course a way to highlight the tremendous good work of our student musicians, but it's also a way for um, the president and for kind of the Institute as a whole to reach out to our broader communities, whether that's the alumni community or the, the local Troy and Capital Region community, um, and, and of course the student body. So, so what will it look like? Right, so whenever, whenever I talk about the holiday concert in, in emails, I always use quotes around concert, right? Because it's not gonna be a concert in the traditional sense. This year, the format of the holiday concert is gonna comprise two different types of musical performance. The first one is the more traditional live performance where we have everyone in the same room. There will be some interesting kind of sleight of hand that we'll have to do. For example, uh, we have one group that is almost 30 people in, in, in size. And we, in order to maintain our social distancing guidelines, we have to stick with 10 people on stage at a time. So we're gonna record uh, three separate groups of 10 people and then combine them with some, you know, with some movie magic. We've been really grateful to the, the support of the MPAC staff um, in pulling that off and assembling it. Um, alongside these live recordings, we're also going to have remote collaborations that are assembled, um, including the performances of those students who are not on campus. So we really wanted to make sure that they would be, be part of the, of the performance. And so you'll, you'll see the, this kind of video patchwork of videos and you'll hear this patchwork of individually recorded audio where everyone is brought together in kind of a, you know, a digital assemblage. But perhaps the profoundest change is that you can't have an audience. For, for a variety of reasons, the way that a crowd gathers to, to listen to music is of course one of the worst possible things you can do during the COVID era. Um, and so an audience was out of the question. And so that poses a real challenge for a musician. How do you find meaning in what you're doing as a performer when you're not making music for someone standing right in front of you? You're now in the home stretch of this unexpected journey. How would you say it's going? I honestly can say I never thought I would be doing anything like this. But given the circumstances, I am cautiously optimistic that um, things are going really well. And I, I told my students that. I, I told them that I think at the beginning of the semester, if I'd been able to see where we are now and what we're about to pull off with the holiday concert, um, I, I would have been over, over the moon. You know, I, I think that, that it's going to be great. And uh, that's a testament to just the ingenuity and hard work and talent of our students. You're a musician. Why do you think music is worth all this extra effort? So there's already the aspect of 
community that I kind of mentioned, that music has this inherently communal um, nature to it. But I think another thing, especially at a school like Rensselaer, that music, making music and, and enjoying music and listening to music and um, comparing your tastes in music with your friends and discovering what music means to you in different ways, it demands or perhaps um, nourishes is a better way to describe it. It nourishes a type of being in the world that the STEM disciplines don't always. And so that there's a tendency to want to break everything down into, into quantifiable data or into um, things that can be easily explained and reproduced, right? And one of the things about the experience of music, and this is true of art in general, I would say, is its ineffable nature, that, that it's, it's not always easy to quantify or to easily even pin down the meaning of something. And I think that because our lives as humans are also defined by those ineffable experiences, learning how to interact with others and how to discover yourself in these experiences is incredibly important and um, remains perhaps even more so important uh, during this this challenging period of time. This episode of Why Not Change the World was recorded remotely due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Please take a moment to rate the podcast on whatever app you're on. And if you'd like to learn more about what's happening at Rensselaer, visit rpi.edu. Thanks for listening. 